Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so while we talk about recent developments in the public safety labor world. I've got a potpourri of different cases I want to talk about uh, this month. A couple of due process cases uh, that are pretty interesting. Got a Garrity case that talks about how the Garrity rule applies in cases where the statement itself is dishonest. I have yet one more in a series of cases that show how difficult it is uh, for public safety employees to make PTSD claims for traumatic incidents that arise out of the job. And I want to start uh, by talking a little bit about. Uh, free speech. I've got a case to, to discuss with respect to free speech, but um, first of all, uh, that Kennedy case that the Supreme Court decided last June, a couple of months ago, uh, the football coach who was praying on the 50-yard line and the court uh, upheld the coach's right to do that, that case has been bugging me a little bit. Uh, if you listen to last month's podcast, you know I thought that it might have some pretty significant legs in terms of opening the door for free speech rights of public safety employees, at least temporarily opening it until the Supreme Court has to decide that issue uh, in and of itself. Uh, but the more I think about that case, I keep turning it over in my mind, uh, I'm wondering what are the implications in terms of religious speech? Uh, and I keep getting drawn back to a fellow by the name of George Daniels. This, this is a case that's 21 years old. There's nothing new about this one. George Daniels was an Arlington, Texas police officer. He was working as a plainclothes officer, and he began to wear on his shirt a small gold cross pin that was a symbol of his evangelical Christianity. Uh, he was reassigned eventually to a uniform position. He continued to wear the pin. The employer ordered him to remove the pin. He refused, he was fired, and that case went up to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and the court ended up saying no freedom of speech rights, no freedom of religious right, religion rights, because he's on the job and he's wearing the employer's uniform and the employer can control what an employee says and wears on the job. That's part of being an employer. Um, and so the court dismisses Daniel's lawsuit. And when I think about Coach Kennedy up in Bremerton, uh, I'm wondering what's the difference between the coach and the detective. Uh, coach Kennedy was praying while on duty in his capacity as a football coach. His employer told him to stop praying. He was praying publicly, of course, on the 50-yard line, and all sorts of disruption occurred around that um, uh, praying. And so he's on duty. He's praying the publicly praying, the employer saying, stop it, he refuses, and he's fired. What's the difference between him and George Daniels? 
who wanted to wear a symbol of his Christianity, not pray out loud on the job, but wear a symbol of his Christianity on first his plain clothes outfit and then eventually his uniform. I'll tell you, analytically, I don't think there is any difference between those two. And I'm starting to wonder, what are we going to see in the future from this whole notion of religious speech on the job with this Supreme Court that is so ready to rule in the favor of uh, the freedom of religious exercise. We'll see. Okay, now let's head down to Georgia and talk about the free speech case that I mentioned. Uh, interesting case. Uh, it illustrates a bit uh, the lack of any meaningful job protections that employees in non-union states have, uh, but I think raises some real questions about uh, the extent to which an employer can control an employee's off-duty speech. So what's this case about? It involves Sergeant Sylvia Cotris. Uh, she works for the city of Roswell, Georgia, and uh, she has had a practice for a long time of flying Confederate-like battle flags. Uh, she flies two of them. Uh, they're displayed on a flagpole underneath an American flag at her home. And she's done this since about uh, 2015. Uh, she explained uh, later on that the first flag was purchased by her late husband and resembled a Confederate battle flag with a motorcycle emblem in the center uh, because her husband was a motorcyclist and participated in bike week and this flag was made in conjunction with that. And then when the first flag wore out, uh, Cotris's roommate removed it and with Cotris's permission replaced it with a new Confederate battle flag that the roommate had received from a neighbor. Cotris explained that she viewed the flag as a way of honoring her, and I'm quoting, uh, Southern heritage, end quote, and her late husband. And at the time that everything I'm talking about happened, the state of Georgia also flew the Confederate battle flag and other flags of the Confederate States of America uh, at Stone Mountain Park, which is uh, an amazing park in Georgia. Well, a citizen complains, says, look, she's parking her police car uh, in her front yard, and I've got this jarring image to me of a police car right next to a Confederate flag. Uh, the uh, employer begins an investigation uh, talks to Cotras about it at the start of the investigation. She removes her flag immediately, returns her police cruiser, uh, but the city still fires her. Now, she's in Georgia. She's in Roswell, Georgia. She's got no job protections. There's no civil service board or arbitrator lurking in the background. There's no right to appeal her discipline into the court system. She is an at-will employee which means the employer can fire her for any reason at all or no reason, so long as the reason doesn't violate her constitutional rights or discriminate on the basis of some protected class. 
Well, she brings a federal court lawsuit saying the termination violated her free speech rights. Uh, and the case eventually gets up to the federal 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. And uh, the court ends up saying that uh, Cotris's raising of the Confederate battle flag while off duty, that wasn't speech as a employee. So therefore, we don't have the whole Garcetti versus Sabalos rule you've heard me rail about forever and ever. Um, but instead, Cotris has to meet uh, a, a three-part burden of proof uh, because this is pure off-duty speech. What's that burden of proof? Number one, she has to show that her speech, as construed in this case through the display of the battle flag, involved a matter of public concern. Secondly, she has to prove that her interest in the speech outweighed the city's, and I'm quoting, legitimate interest in the effective and efficient fulfillment of police department responsibilities and operations, end of quote. And third, she has to show that her speech played a substantial part in the city's decision to terminate her. Uh, and the court ends up saying, you know what, we'll, we'll grant you that this speech is a matter of public concern. There have been a lot of debates about the flying of various con uh, Confederate flags, particularly the battle flag. We'll, we'll grant her that she can meet number one. And secondly, we'll grant her number three, uh, that her speech played a substantial part in the city's decision to terminate her. But she loses because she can't prove number two, that her interest in the speech outweighs the city's interest uh, in running its police department. Here's what the court says, quote, the Confederate battle flag is said to evoke the memory of their ancestors and other soldiers who fought for the South in the Civil War. But to many others, it symbolizes slavery, segregation, and hatred. The city, then and now, has a clear interest in maintaining a favorable reputation with the public and in assuring that there are no disruptions within the police department. Continuing with the quote, these interests could be impeded if the members of the public will have a valid concern about the symbolism of the battle flag, associate the police department with the flag. That was likely given that Cotras had on some occasions flown the flag while a city police cruiser was parked in her yard and the city has pointed to an actual complaint, an actual complaint from a citizen about the flag's display at Cotris's home. So the court ends up saying city on balance uh, wins because the potential disruption to the department as reflected by the complaint that it received, the potential disruption to the uh, department outweighs Cotris's free speech interests. Now, does this come out a different way if there's any meaningful appeal right from Cotris's termination? Well, yeah, I think there's a pretty good chance, right? Um, Cotris didn't fly the flag out of racial animus. When somebody complained, she took it down right away, returned to her police car. She was flying the flag as a 
a sign of respect for her deceased husband. Uh, I, I think you put all those things together and I think an arbitrator or a civil service board is probably still going to discipline her saying essentially you should know better, uh, particularly in this day and age. But I'm not sure termination is what happens because she seems to be taking all the right steps here. But she's an at-will employee. And when you get down to, in these free speech cases, balancing the interests of the employer against the interests of the employee, given the incredible conservative nature of our federal court system right now, the employer is going to win that balance nine out of 10 times, 95 out of 100 times. And that's what happened to Cotras. Now we've got a case out of Delaware, the Garrity case that I was telling you about. Uh, it, this case is one we see about every three or four years in one form or another. And I view it as just a very good reminder of what Garrity does and does not do. Of course, under Garrity versus New Jersey, if a public employee is compelled to give a statement, as part of a disciplinary investigation or as a condition of employment, uh, then uh, neither the statement nor the fruits of the statement can be used to prosecute the employee. Uh, Garrity is a rule of criminal immunity uh, that the employee gets what, are, what would be called by judges uh, use and derivative use immunity. You compel someone to get a statement, then the statement and the fruits of the statements are off limits in a subsequent criminal prosecution. The question that comes up from time to time is, does that mean that the Garrity rule gives an employee free reign to lie in a compelled interview? Uh, and here's the latest iteration of courts answering that question with the word no. Uh, okay, so what's the story with this case? This comes to us from a state court in Delaware. It involves James McCall. He's a police officer with the city of Wilmington, Delaware. And in 2019, he shot a fleeing carjacking suspect. During the resulting deadly force investigation, McCall turns in his department-issued gun for testing. Uh, the ballistics result on the gun uh, showed a mismatch between the grooves on the test rounds and the grooves on the bullets recovered from the scene, uh, which suggests that either it's not the same gun or maybe the barrel has been swapped out. Uh, so the department takes a close look at the gun and uh, determines that the gun barrel was not a department standard issue barrel. The department, thinking that McCall had switched his gun barrel, uh, began an internal affairs investigation. And when the IA interview starts, the department gives McCall the standard reverse Garrity warnings, ordering him to answer all questions or face potential termination. So what happens in the IA interview? He denies, McCall denies changing his gun barrel after the shooting. Uh, and instead, he says, yeah, I did replace that barrel, but it was a year earlier, and I did it to improve the accuracy of the firearm. 
Uh, and McCall produces during the interview what he claims to be the original barrel. Um, and in the end, McCall never admitted to either a crime or any wrongdoing, but his answers just didn't line up with the ballistic test results, nor could he give a consistent account of where he had been after the shooting. Uh, and it appeared, there's evidence, that where he had been after the shooting was making a unauthorized visit to the department's weapons locker. Uh, the state indicts McCall for three crimes, providing a false statement to law enforcement, tampering with physical evidence, and official misconduct. Uh, in the pretrial jousting that goes on, McCall files a motion to dismiss the indictment and to exclude his interview statements from evidence, citing Garrity. Uh, and this case will probably rise or fall on whether or not Garrity rights exist, right? Because without the uh, results of the interview, without the transcript of the interview, uh, none of these three charges, well, maybe the tampering charge, uh, can be proven. At least two out of the three can't be proven. So uh, what does the court do? The court says, motion denied. The court says, look, Garrity didn't change the Fifth Amendment, it applied the Fifth Amendment. And so let's start from the proposition of whether the Fifth Amendment uh, protects perjury. And there's a long line of cases, says the court, where people have been hauled in front of a grand jury, compelled to testify, lied on the witness stand, and subsequently prosecuted for perjury. Uh, and the court says those same principles apply to Garrity. Garrity only immunizes truthful statements made by public employees under penalty of termination. And here's a few sentences from uh, the court on uh, its rationale here, and I'm quoting. False statements are not considered coerced under the Fifth Amendment or Garrity. As a result, false statements are not immune to charges based on the statement's falsity, even when an officer makes the statements between the, quote, rock, end quote, of self-incrimination and the, quote, whirlpool, end quote, of termination. Rock and whirlpool? Where's the court getting that? Actually, if you go back to the language of uh, Garrity, you'll find that the Supreme Court in Garrity refers to the employee who's compelled to give a statement as being between the Scylla and Charybdis, the Scylla being the possibility of self-incrimination and the Charybdis being that of termination. Uh, those of you who have read and love and remember the Odyssey uh, know uh, that Scylla and Charybdis are a rock and a whirlpool that consumes Greeks uh, sailors. Okay, back to uh, what the court says. Quote, giving a false statement is an independent criminal act that occurs when the individual makes the false statement. Garrity insulated statements regarding past events must be truthful to avoid future prosecution for such crimes as perjury and obstruction of justice. Courts are very, very consistent on this issue. Garrity only protects 
truthful statements. And of course, Garrity is only a rule of criminal immunity anyway, right? So even if uh, McCall or someone else in his situation could not be prosecuted for making an untruthful statement, he certainly could be discharged for making an untruthful statement in an internal affairs interview. And that would not implicate Garrity in the slightest. Okay, now let's turn to the due process cases that I mentioned. The first one I want to go to is a case out of Connecticut uh, from a federal court in Connecticut and it concerns due process rights uh, with respect to promotion. Uh, so let me give you kind of the general lay of the land first. How does due process play into promotion? Uh, does an employer, before it refuses to promote someone, does an employer have to give the employee a hearing, give the employee uh, a chance to tell his or her side of the story, that sort of thing? How does due process fit within a promotional structure? And the way the courts look at uh, the whole issue of due process and promotions is to ask the question whether or not the employer has any discretion with respect to the promotional decision. So what do I mean by that? So in order to have a due process right, you have to fall within the description of due process that we find in the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments to the Constitution. You have to have what's called either a property right or a liberty right to the promoted position. No court has ever found a liberty right to a promoted position. So it comes down to, do you have a property right to the job? And courts, when looking at whether or not a property right exists, ask the question, does the employee have a reasonable expectation in the promoted position? Uh, in, in other words, if there is no discretion on the employer's part, then it's possible that the employee may have a due process right to the promoted position. Uh, if, on the other hand, there's any discretion on the part of the employer, then there's no property right and hence no due process rights. And the phrase that you see that the courts use time and time again, and I'm quoting here, roughly quoting, uh, that in order to have a property interest in an employment position, the employee must have more than an abstract need or desire for it. The employee must have a legitimate claim of entitlement to the position. Okay, so what, what's going on in this case in Connecticut? Uh, this case involves John Cummings, who's a lieutenant in the Bridgeport Police Department. In 2015, the city holds an examination for uh, a promotion to position of captain. Cummings ends up ranked 10th on the promotional list. So fast forward from 2015 to early 2018, about two and a half years later, uh, the uh, police union president knocks on the door of the police chief and says, Chief, uh, the promotional list for captain is about to expire. The chief then requests that the personnel director uh, provide the next highest scoring lieutenants, 
uh, to be certified for promotion to the rank of captain. And at the time of this request, there's two vacant captain positions, and uh, Cummings would have been one of those two, okay? Uh, on getting this request, the personnel director replies to the chief that he couldn't certify two captains because the positions were not budgeted. And then later in the day, the personnel director rephrases it, gives the same answer, essentially, but says, uh, look, uh, I, I'm going to give you these next two names on the list, uh, but I can't certify them because there's no funding for the positions. Uh, and uh, when Cummings uh, learns of all this, he files a civil service appeal. Civil Service Commission votes unanimously to certify Cummings' name for promotion, and despite being certified for the promotion to the rank of captain, he's not promoted. He's never given a reason for not being promoted, isn't given a hearing. And in fact, to this day, uh, we're now, boy, what, seven years after the initial creation of the list, the city still hasn't promoted anyone to the position of captain after Cummings was certified pursuant to the order of the Civil Service Commission. So Cummings sues and says, look, uh, I, from the moment that I was certified, I had a legitimate claim of entitlement to the position of captain. And the fact that you did not promote me and did not give me due process rights, a hearing, notice in a hearing, that violated the 14th Amendment. So the first half of this case comes down to whether or not that list on which Cummings' name had uh, appeared, whether or not it had already expired when the chief requested the names for certification. Remember I told you the list had been in effect for two and a half years after, as of the time uh, that the police union president warned the chief it was about to expire. The city has a rule, it's under the city charter, that a list can only be enforced for two years. And the court ends up saying that the question here is, is this list still in force when Cummings' name was certified? And the court says, no, it wasn't. The only reasonable reading of the charter is that the list remains or becomes in force at the conclusion of an appeal period uh, one month from the date of the posting of the list from an appeal that anybody who was not on the list uh, would have or who wanted to challenge their position on the list. That expired more than two years before Cummings' name was certified. And because his name wasn't certified from a valid list, there's no property right to the job and hence no due process. Cummings argues, look, uh, maybe that list had expired, but there's past practice here. The city has a historical pattern of interpreting the list to expire two years from the date of the first promotion off the list. The court says, no, not, not buying that argument either. Quote, this court has failed to discover a single case where a property interest was found based on a policy or practice that was in direct violation of an existing law. In fact, perhaps unsurprisingly, just the opposite is true. So the result, no due process right to the job, list is expired, 
If Cummings wants to be a captain, he's going to have to test again. Now for a pretty significant case, due process case, out of Louisiana. And I want to thank Donovan Livicari, who's an attorney uh, in New Orleans, or at least represents New Orleans police officers quite a bit, uh, for pointing us uh, to this case, because I think this case is a, a pretty important one. Uh, and it involves the question of when a pre-disciplinary hearing has to happen uh, with respect to the normal internal affairs uh, process. Uh, and it reaches somewhat of a different result than you might expect. So this is a case that involves uh, Delandro Washington. Uh, he's a police officer in Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, the department gets a complaint that uh, concerning Washington's behavior and eventually Washington and other witnesses were interviewed. An IA investigator prepared a report with findings uh, and the IA investigator recommended that uh, the charges be not sustained. The IAB report, we don't need to know, by the way, the details of the offense here. It's, it's not important. The IAB report is sent to the uh, police chief and the chief's senior chain of command. Uh, there's a helpful comments page for uh, department leadership to uh, fill out if they have any questions about the discipline. Uh, both the IA captain and an assistant chief concurred with and agreed um, to the IAB's report, the Internal Affairs report finding that no sustained complaint was warranted. Uh, however, the chief and a deputy chief disagree. And guess who gets to break that tie? It's the chief. Uh, and he sustains one of the charges against Washington. The chief then orders that a pre-disciplinary hearing be held, uh, and the hearing is held. And at, at the start, a deputy who is present at this hearing advises everybody concerned that the complaint was already sustained. And at the conclusion of the hearing, a discipline of three days uh, suspension, it's not really a suspension, it's a fine, not a suspension, uh, was imposed. Washington then files a challenge to the fine through the Civil Service Board, and we end up in front of the Louisiana Court of Appeals. Now, before I get into what the court says about the due process implications here, some of you may be scratching your head saying, really? Can an employer fine an employee? Why would an employer want to fine an employee? And the answer is, yeah, that is a disciplinary sanction that is possible. It's very rarely used. I think the last time I saw a case involving a fine of an employee was maybe 15, 20 years ago. I think the idea that an employer has behind a fine is, uh, look, if I suspend somebody without pay, yeah, they, you know, I punish them. I, I, I've given the message that I wanted to give through the disciplinary system, but I don't get any work out of them while I while they're on suspension. If I fine them, I can both punish them and get work out of them. I think that's the logic behind a fine. Uh, I also think that's the reason you don't tend to see fines very often. And also, uh, an employer in a bargaining environment that wants to move to a system of fines. Uh, has to negotiate over that. There are cases right on point. 
I can think of one out of Cook County, Illinois, uh, and uh, that where the labor boards end up saying, hey, look, this is a question of disciplinary penalties. Of course, that's a negotiable working condition. Okay, that's all an aside. Now let's get into the due process uh, issue. And the due process issue here, I think I've signaled it a bit, is uh, was Washington entitled to due process before the charge was sustained by the police chief? You know, arguably he may have had some sort of due process in the internal affairs uh, process, but that ended with a not sustained complaint. And here you have the police chief changing that. And here's what the court has to say. And the court, court ends up saying his due process rights uh, were violated. And I'm quoting from the court, Washington had already been found guilty as a result of the complaint having been sustained before he walked into the pre-disciplinary hearing. By the department's own policy, he couldn't present evidence that the violation should be classified as anything other than sustained. Uh, and the, uh, the city responds, well, okay, maybe, but didn't the internal affairs uh, questioning give the officer the chance for you, you know, to tell the officer's own side of the story. It wasn't that due processy like? And the court ends up saying, uh, no, uh, it, it is not due process like. Uh, and I'm quoting, at the time the officer is being interrogated by internal affairs, there's been no finding of wrongdoing by the department. Without a finding of wrongdoing, regarding what specifically is the officer to receive notice. The interrogation is simply a stage in the investigation into a complaint that has been filed. It cannot serve as more than what it is in order to satisfy due process requirements that are lacking elsewhere. By the way, isn't that a wonderfully constructed sentence? I just love it when courts uh, kind of shed the legalism and, uh, and exercise their writing chops. So what's the result here? Quoting, uh, since Washington was not afforded the procedural due process rights to which he was entitled, his discipline is invalid as an absolute nullity. Interesting case, right? I'm not sure I've actually seen a court make these sort of distinctions before. But you know what? It makes sense. Uh, I mean, going back to what the court said, without a finding of wrongdoing, how can you give the notice that is required by procedural due process? I think this court is right on this. It's a, I'm, I'm guessing it's going to be a controversial decision in Louisiana. We'll see if it gets applied elsewhere. But interesting case. All right, our last case this month is another one of these PTSD-type cases, and these cases always have the uh, kind of the most achingly troublesome uh, facts. You read them and you just feel terrible for people who were concerned with the incident. And in most states, public safety employees find that these claims for PTSD arising out of traumatic incidents on the job 
they find that uh, they're not entitled to get workers' compensation benefits because of the very difficult standards that courts have set up for uh, mental uh, illness claims, including PTSD claims. So let's talk about this case. This is uh, an officer for the township of Evesham in New Jersey. His name is Barry Mesmer. And in 2016, he's dispatched to a call regarding a potential suicide. Uh, Mesmer knows that he's driving to the home of a firefighter, uh, somebody that he knows uh, and works in the Evesham uh, Township Fire Department. Uh, even though Mesmer and the firefighter were not close friends, they did have a professional acquaintance. When Mesmer arrives at the house, the woman and her son run out screaming. He's inside. He shot himself. Mesmer sees, uh, when he goes in the house, a white dog that is splattered with bud, blood, and the firefighter propped up against the fireplace with a shotgun under his leg, and in the words of the court, his head blown off. Um, Mesmer also sees brain matter everywhere and smells the strong odor of gunpowder and blood. Uh, Mesmer is ordered by his supervisor to stay with the body to prevent the scene from contamination, and he's there for some amount of time. Uh, and then after the body is removed, Mesmer is ordered to comfort the firefighter's wife and son. He also transported the firefighter's daughter to the police station, and not unexpectedly, uh, almost immediately, he starts to show the signs of PTSD. Uh, he reports feeling depressed and having trouble disassociating himself uh, during the incident. He goes through a mandatory debriefing, but he doesn't actually speak during the debriefing because he felt uncomfortable discussing his feelings. Uh, he does tell his supervisor later that he's sleeping poorly, experiencing flashbacks to the incident. Uh, a chaplain sees him, tells him to take time off from work. Uh, Mesmer eventually ends up with a psychiatrist. When he comes back to work, he, the department tries to accommodate him, gives him clerical jobs. He uses headphones to try to help him focus on work tasks, um, but eventually uh, he's unable to continue working as a police officer. So in June of 2017, he files for accidental disability benefits. Accidental disability benefits are uh, workers' comp type benefits uh, in New Jersey. That's what they're commonly called. And accidental disability benefits are a, uh, they pr produce more disability uh, pay than ordinary disability benefits. So what's the difference uh, between the two, particularly in the context of a traumatic incident? Uh, here's a quote from the court's eventual decision in this case. Uh, the court says, quote, accidental retirement disability benefits require an employee to demonstrate that he or she is permanently and totally disabled as a direct result of a traumatic event occurring during and as a result of the performance of regular and assigned duties. So uh, that looks like Mesmer qualifies, right? I mean, let's take apart that uh, definition. Permanently and totally disabled, there's no dispute about that. Uh, 
as a result of a traumatic incident. There's no dispute about whether this is a traumatic incident. And did it occur during the result of his perform uh, performance of his duties? Yeah, it, it did. Uh, so you'd think he'd win. But the court goes on to say uh, that under a great deal of case law that New Jersey courts have decided over the years uh, that a person seeking accidental disability benefits must prove that the disability resulted from a direct personal experience of a terrifying or horror-inducing event that involved actual or threatened death or serious injury or a similarly serious threat to the physical integrity of the member or another person. Uh, and the court doesn't end up disputing that Mesmer suffered a terrifying and horror-inducing event, uh, but what it found was that Mesmer was unable to prove that the event itself was unexpected, not anticipated as part of his job. And here's what the court says, quote, Mesmer's job functions as of February 14th, 2016, this occurred on Valentine's Day, included protecting accident scenes, preventing destruction of evidence, providing supported crime scenes, examining ill or injured persons, removing dead or injured persons from vehicles at crash scenes, communicating with distraught persons and withstanding exposure to and dealing with stress involving incidents of suicide. Mesmer received training both at the police academy and through the course of his career in responding to situations involving graphic and gruesome deaths. Mesmer was not a rookie officer and had responded to at least 10 calls involving gruesome, disfigured, dead bodies, or serious injuries. On this record, we are satisfied that there is ample, credible evidence supporting the denial of Mesmer's application for accidental benefits. Wow, that's pretty incredible, isn't it? Uh, incredible standard. How do you fix that? You're not going to fix it by arguing the case over and over again to the same people who created those rules, courts. The only way that public safety employees, police, fire, corrections, uh, the only way that they're going to get a different test for when PTSD and other mental illnesses are treated as compensable injuries is by convincing a legislature to amend the statutes that control when those benefits can be awarded. Courts are simply not changing their minds on this issue. So next time, uh, any of you getting together and you're talking about legislative priorities for the next legislative session, apart from fighting off all sorts of attacks on collective bargaining rights or whatever it might be, you might put this one on your list. Uh, have your lawyers take a look at what your standards are in your state for PTSD coverage under either pension systems or workers' compensation. So with that, that's the end of the August 2022 edition of First Thursday. Uh, we've got a, a great seminar coming up in September, our Grievances and Arbitration Seminar, where we'll talk about things like past practice and 
uh, what the arbitration process is like and how you can prepare to win uh, arbitrations. What are the necessary steps for that? Uh, we hope to see you at that seminar. It's at the Flamingo in Las Vegas. Uh, hopefully by mid-September, it'll be under 100 degrees in Las Vegas, but I suspect that may be a forlorn hope. Um, and with that, I uh, hope the rest of your summer is a great one. This is Will Aitchison signing off.